I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Welcome back. Today is my very first Slow Mo Live. You know, you heard of those ideas of recording podcasts live. I, I have no idea why, but uh, now it's actually starting to appear as a very good idea because uh, a week ago, my dear friend, uh, Simon Salter, who is uh, uh, very successfully building a business called Dirty clever play on the brand there. You know, we were having coffee, not dirty, and he was having hot chocolate, strange for an old man. And he uh, basically said, why don't we have a get together for my community? And I said, sure. And then he said, why don't you and my guest today do it together? And so I said, yeah, I always wanted my guest today to be a guest on my podcast. So let's do a live recording. We're here at the house of Coco in London, who has very generously over four days set us up and we're here to record a conversation with someone I hold very, very dear. So my guest today is a gorgeous soul. In all honesty, someone who I can vouch for as one of the purest, most purpose-driven souls on the planet. My guest is Africa Brooke. I met her uh, on a panel in a virtual event. And at the end of the panel, I reached out and I said, I think we really need to get to know each other. A few weeks later, I came to London, asked uh, Africa for coffee, and we had endless conversations of depth that is truly worthy of someone who has a, a soul like Africa. Africa is a, a writer. She is a podcaster. Her uh, podcast is called Beyond the Self. She has a beautiful story of self-reflection that got her to where she is today. And she is someone who consults, if you want, to really help people find their way through, I think, what humans do so frequently to uh, harm themselves. So self-censorship and self-sabotage. Her next work is about how societies do that in general. And uh, yeah, I don't know if we're going to talk about any of that at all, because me and Africa go all over the place. So uh, I hope you enjoy my conversation today with a very dear soul to me, Africa Brooke. Africa. So um, thank you for being here. Thank you for being you. I find... When I'm next to you, a very unusual feeling of clarity. So whenever we spoke about anything, you seem to either have a very um, heartfelt, not thought through always, but very heartfelt feeling of what you want, what you stand for, what you think about the topic. And when you didn't, you were very open about it. You were like, ah, no idea. Okay. And I think that clarity is, in my view, something that's very, 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 very rare to find. So I want to start from that clarity and maybe put you on the spot and ask you, with that clarity, do you know why you're here in this world? And if you, if you were to do one thing for the rest of your life, what would that be? Okay. So a very light question. 
Yeah, let's jump in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why waste time? And, you know, before I do that, I really just want to um, just thank you for that introduction. I, I was trying to hold back tears as you were talking because sometimes I can find it quite difficult to really receive someone's reflection of me it's almost as if it's easy for me to receive it from an intellectual plane sometimes it doesn't quite filter into my body but every time you reflect something back to me it always does so thank you thank from the you. heart i see that thank you i see you in a very interesting way i think i see you in a way that uh, gets covered by your incredible fashion sense of fashion and the way you present yourself to the world so we'll get there thank we'll you. get there okay yeah. we'll yeah. get there it was was that your attempt to take a few minutes to think yes, about yes i question? tried I, <laughs> I, 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 did, I did what i could <laughs> why am i can you reflect that question back to me mo why are you so here I can really in this take world? it in why am i here in this world what are you supposed to do in this world I really want to answer that question without giving something superficial or saying the thing that I think was will sound the best or what I think I should say. What feels true is that I I don't completely know. I just I just know that through adversity that I've experienced in my life and through the pain that I have caused myself and other people in my lifetime, I was able to change my life in ways that I didn't imagine that I would. And I, I know the idea of changing your life can sound, you know, like it was some kind of profound decision and it just happened, but it was a very brutal process. And very specifically, and I'm sure we'll get into it, I had to get sober seven years ago. And it was not a decision that I made initially for myself. It was not a decision that I made lightly. I had to relapse seven times in very, very big ways before the eighth time finally stuck. And when that happened, I had to ask myself questions that were so seemingly simple. What do I actually enjoy? <laughs> What do I like? What does fun actually mean? If I'm not snorting something or smoking something or drinking something or trying to sex away, something what do I actually enjoy and through sharing my story because that was the only way that I could manage to stay sober storytelling because I've always been a writer since I was a child I was able to see that I had something that was very useful not just to myself but to other people I was able to speak about my life experience without making myself bad without buying into the shame I was able to remove or rather stop looking at my addiction as some kind of moral failing and get curious about what was actually happening to me on a body level, on a mind level. And I started speaking about it and I realized that I had a gift for speaking. I have a mind that is able to see solutions straight away, which is very interesting because I wasn't able to see those solutions for myself for a long time. But through the lens of sobriety, I was able to see solutions in a way that I just hadn't before. And I moved away from my own subjective experience into looking at things in a more objective way. And I just found this gift of being able to support people. That's when I came across the concept of self-sabotage. So when I think about your question, 
I don't know comes to mind in, in terms of saying I exist to do this specific thing, but I know that through my adversity of trying to get sober and, and so many underpinnings of that, I have been able to tap into a gift that can help so many people, but it allows me to stay sober seven years on. So I, I think that's that's part of the, the answer, which isn't so clear, but I I don't think that it has to be. First time I get you. Uh, <laughs> it's very clear to me, actually, if you, yeah. if you really think about it. And I, I'll, I'll say that with respect because I know people go through different stages in life. One of the things that truly puzzles me about London mm. is last night, Friday night. It really puzzles me about this place because as you can see, you know, with my uh, Middle Eastern blood and my uh, bald head, I get really cold uh, in your city. And this is the time where everyone is out on Friday night, partially naked, literally with a vengeance, like they're really, really looking out to get drunk. And in my mind, of course, I understand. I understand that there must be a reason why feeling so cold, feeling, sorry to say, objectified sometimes, uh, feeling drunk is needed. And when I heard your story, and how you so openly and bluntly talk about escape, the sense of, I don't want to meet me. In my mind, it becomes so clear why you're here. In a very interesting way, your suffering is a bit of uh, salvation for the suffering of others. You get to struggle so badly since, how early did you start to drink? 14. 14. Mm -hmm. And then I, I would say that it's, I'm 31 now. 14 and then it started to get quite extreme from the age of 16. What is extreme? Extreme to me was, that's a very good question. Extreme to me was the sudden realization that blacking out isn't something that happened to everyone. I, I truly <laughs> believed yeah. that blacking out, which is when you drink so much so quickly to the point where you, your brain can't make any short-term memories, I thought that it happened to everyone. I thought it was normal to lose your memory and your consciousness for such long periods of time. I thought it was normal to be on autopilot and to just never remember anything that happened, but no one else can tell that you're under some kind of spell. Yeah. So from the age of 16, I started to realize that Actually, that wasn't quite normal, but it's interesting. And this is where self-sabotage comes in, which is essentially when you, when, what you say you want. And I, I always like to define things in a, in a way that is very, very simple so we can all understand. I define self-sabotage as when what you say you want is in direct conflict with your behavior or the other way around. Mm. So I say that I want to get well but my actions are showing the complete opposite. I'm drinking my own body weight and losing such long periods of time, hours and hours. I think at the most, sometimes it would be about eight to nine hours where I have no idea what's happened. So from that realization, I didn't change anything. In fact, I doubled down. So that's when things started to get quite extreme. Why? Mm, why? What drives someone to be in that place? What drives people on Friday night? <laughs> well, what drove me was um, the girl that I met when I was under that spell. To me, she was much more 
she was free. She was free in a way that I, I thought that I could never be. And living in an immigrant home, I'm from Zimbabwe. Oh, I couldn't tell. You couldn't tell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Zimbabwe. And even though we moved here when I was nine years old, I adapted to the culture here quite quickly because I was old enough to still remember where I'm from, but also young enough to be able to assimilate and adjust to a new world and a new way of being. But within my home, it's Zimbabwe. We're not in Ealing, we're in Zimbabwe, you know. <laughs> so there's the religion, there's the rules, there's the way of being that is just the norm culturally. So I felt very um, stifled. I, I felt that I wasn't able to express myself in a lot of ways because girls are not supposed to do certain things because of the religion, but also because of the culture. So when I was outside of my home, there was a level of freedom that I had access to, which I could never imagine having in my home. But I think apart from that, there was a mental freedom as well, because I, I grew up in a home where there was a lot of physical abuse. So there was a lot of shame around my family. There was a lot of shame around that dynamic within my family of origin. So when I drunk for the first time, the fact that all of that could go away, I didn't have to think about any of that. I was exposed to a version of Africa, me, not, not the continent, a version of Africa that was free, that was confident, that felt desirable even at such a young age. So I think the thing that kept me coming back, which is I think what keeps a lot of people coming back is the level of freedom, you know, that you feel. So I gave alcohol credit for that freedom. Is it really freeing? I mean, when you when you drink yourself into another personality, is is that you free or are you surrendering to the other personality? I think now in retrospect, it's easy for me to say that it wasn't actually freedom, that it wasn't true liberation, that it was me surrendering to that shadow aspect of myself. But if I'm to be completely honest, it, it was freeing at the time because I, I didn't have to feel the level of pain that I felt, which is why I empathize with addicts of all different types, not just drugs, but it could be porn, it could be gambling, it could be whatever else. Of course, when you look at it objectively, it's not freedom. It's very easy to say that, but I, I wonder, and you can tell, I, I'm really curious to know what you think, but I think it's- This is why you don't interview podcasters on your podcast. <laughs> Yes, they suddenly turn it on you. No, no please, we'll just turn it on you. Yeah. But I, I think it's so layered because what happened when I got sober, I looked at all of those moments through that lens of saying it was suffering, it was never liberating. But I think when I got more comfortable within my sobriety and I was able to look at my history through a more balanced, nuanced perspective... I realized that, you know, there were moments that I'm so grateful for when I mm. could just be on the dance floor and not care about what was happening oh, at home, you know, where I felt just all that existed in that moment was the people, the bodies around me and the music and just feeling so light in my body. Yes, feeling so high, no concept of tomorrow, no worry about how I'm going to get home because this moment right now is the only thing that exists. And to me, those moments are still precious. I did feel free 
I did. But I think the thing was, I gave drugs and alcohol credit for that level of freedom, not knowing that I can tap into that freedom myself. But I could never have known that at the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I find it quite interesting that the, the, the freedom that we all seek is just a subject to all of the judgment of people around mm. us. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, I'm I'm, yes. I'm guessing you're a very good dancer, so uh, you you probably mm. did no, no no yes yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> so 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 you so you <laughs> so so I mean in a in a very interesting way, probably being on you know on the dance floor uh, was shouldn't have been worried about judgment at all, right? Mm. I think there is an interesting side to all of us where we start to at a point in our life, you know, in your life, I, I don't know when that started, mm. but when we start to to look at others and and think about what they think of us, yes. right? So as, as children, we don't give a shit. Mm. Uh, we just do whatever we want. We're just so free anyway. And then either a parent or a society or a, a boyfriend or a bully in school or someone starts to say, no, you, you're not going to fit in yes. this way. This is going to screw you up. You know, you need to be this way or that way. And I think that's where the dichotomy starts. You, you're, you're from one side. You're, you're telling yourself, but my true spirit is supposed to dance, mm-hmm. right? And yet, my fear of perception of society tells me I shouldn't. And so, to reconcile those two together, you start to say, how can I do it without doing it? Sort of, right? How can I escape my reality, uh, which has been conditioned within me, to go to my actual reality, which is how I'm supposed to be? Mm-hmm. And I, I find it quite interesting that I'm a, a tiny bit on the spectrum. So I never had that fear at all. Really? Never at all. all? Like I never, I mean, one of the reasons I succeeded very early on in my career is because as a 24 year old salesman at IBM, I literally would pick up the phone and ask for an appointment with the minister of education. Mm. And, you know, people go like, what, you're, what are you to ask for that? I'm, I'm, I'm the IBM account manager, right? <laughs> And that's all I understood. Right. And I mean, and in my mind, I had that very, very strong conviction that if the if the prime minister gets up in the middle of the meeting to go pee, then he's human. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. And, and and I was completely convinced. And I think that completely flipped my life upside down. And of course, as you can still see, I mean, my my t-shirts and horrible jeans. No, are continue. They're great. Yeah. Did you guys hear that? Uh, they're great. <laughs> but, you know, it's 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 a continuation of that. It's a bit of a very interesting way of saying, yeah. I mean, they can mm. think whatever they want to think. Did you get any of that at all? I'm going to answer that, but a question just came to mind, and I think that it will land in a way that makes sense for you. Is there a shadow to that in any way? Uh, being insensitive. <laughs> I don't yeah. know what you mean. Uh, as in, as in, or however this question lands, because I'm curious that this thing, which I, I just think it's incredible, never having that thing where you're concerned about what other people think, just instinctively being able to say what it is you feel, do the thing you want to do. Has there ever been a shadow side to that? There is a social let's call it confusion mm. about mm-hmm. why do people do what they do? Like, you right. know, why do they respond in those ways? Yeah. Why, why was he surprised when I asked that question? But remember when, you know, each and every one of us, which I think is really, really key to understand the world is configured differently, wired differently. Okay. And conditioned differently. Mm-hmm. And so there is n- not two of us that are the same. 
And it's actually the worst mistake you can ever do is to is to behave in a business deal or in a friendship or in a love relationship or thinking that the other person should react this way because you would react this way. And I have to tell you openly, I mean, early in school, early in, uh, in my work experiences, I would get really puzzled. Why are humans doing this? That sounds really weird, right? But the other side you get with being a little bit there is that you have a very strong pattern recognition. So, so you, you, you may not believe this, but I, I believe that most of my social skills, which now are completely natural to me, but when I was six years old, I remember vividly standing in school and wondering like, why are those kids so weird? And, and, and then somehow telling myself, but you know what? I can do that too. Yeah. It's not really wrong or right. It's not difficult. You know, if they want me to run and scream in the schoolyard, I can run and scream. It's not me, but I can run and scream. It's okay, right? I think that the the interesting, which probably is the reason why when I write, people think of my writing as explanatory is because I do go through those analysis. Like, why do humans do this? You know what I mean? And when you really look at it logically, why do humans feel feel unhappy when something happens, right? Because I feel unhappy and happy slightly differently. I'm completely in tune with the idea of when life is, you know, sucks, you have to accept Mm it, okay? But but I think that kind of introspection made, made, made a big difference to me, but it did have a shadow. It had a lot of confusion, you know. Yeah. Uh, my wonderful daughter, Aya, is here. And she, she would tell you that in my early years of marriage, in many of my years of marriage, I never understood why my wonderful ex-wife would behave in certain ways because it's not like me. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. And I that line of questioning that starts with why for me was probably the most profound place that I could have actually found myself in because those seven times that I relapsed to begin with it it was just this thing that happened I just had to put it in a box pretend that it didn't happen try to get sober again and then I would be sober for maybe two months everything is going well And specifically what I mean by everything is going well, I would actually follow through with what I said I would do because what would happen when I was in a blackout, I don't know if anyone in the room has experienced these, but the most sinister thing about it is that no one else would be able to tell. I wouldn't stumble. I wouldn't be kind of evidently drunk. You would not be able to tell unless you were someone that actually knew me And you maybe saw like a glazing behind my eyes or if you were just close enough and you were able to tell that there's kind of like a, there's a deadness behind the eyes, but I'm speaking as if everything is normal. So what would happen was that I would end up making plans, say that I'm going to do certain things, get in touch with people, maybe call people that I've harmed in the past in some kind of way and try to make amends because again I I thought this was the only time that I could be brave and courageous say what I need to say do what I need to do but then of course in the morning I'm not I'm not going to remember any of this you know I I always I always think of that time period as like uh it was it was like CSI I would have to try and figure out what happened <laughs> look at my phone at the text and the timeline call up friends when we left this place what so I was a very unreliable person in so many ways but mostly to myself so when I would get sober 
suddenly I would follow through with things. I would show up to work on time, which was a very big deal for me because I, I wasn't able to stay in anything for longer than a couple of weeks or a month or three months. Oh, I find that amazing knowing you now. I know. Yeah. I know. I know. And it was it was really starting to to ruin my life in ways that were I, I can't even describe the damage that was happening. And it was so painful to hold because other people couldn't see it. And because I was young, getting older, but young enough, people just thought everyone blacks out. This happens all the time. It's not a big deal. So I, the, the pain, it was very hard to describe to anyone else what I was truly experiencing. And I curated my life in such a way where... I was surrounded by party friends. So we were all affirming and validating each other. And I think that's an important thing for anyone listening right now to just start to look at the life that you've curated for yourself, because sometimes we design our lives to accommodate our suffering. And that's exactly what I did, you know. So when I would be sober for two months, three months, etc., and I suddenly I'm reliable, I'm following through, I would feel so uncomfortable And then I would pull the plug and start drinking again. Why? Same thing would happen, but exactly. So I ended up saying, why? But I only asked myself this the eighth time, 2016, okay. when I decided to get sober for the final time, seven years ago. And I got curious about why I would find myself in these cycles where when I'm close to getting well, I start to feel kind of sick in the mind. I start to feel really uncomfortable. Mm. And it was revealed through to me over time, not kind of in just sort of one gift-wrapped answer, but I had been so used to, well, my nervous system, first of all, was kind of used to the chaos and the mm, drama. Familiarity. I wasn't used to a version yeah. of Africa yeah. who is well, yeah. where things work out, yeah. where I'm on good terms with my family, where I show up. If I say, Mo, I'll meet you here, I'm there. I won't wake up maybe an hour after, turn off my phone and just not say anything <laughs> for, for a week or so, which was very normal behavior at the time. But I realized that I was so used to the version of me that is in constant cycles of destruction and some kind of chaos that would give me some adrenaline. And then I fuck up and then I have to fix things. And then I'm in people's good graces again. And then I, I, I was so used to that. I was not used to the version of me that is well. So I would always relapse. So, so you think that we fear change, even if change appears to be for the good? Oh, absolutely. That's such absolutely. an interesting for you. I, I think it's um, to do with our self-concept, right? The idea that we have of ourselves. All of these stories that we imprint onto our identity every single day, even in small things like, um, and women tend to say things like this a lot, oh, I'm so clumsy. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm so clumsy. I'm so you're you're sort of affirming all of these I have no identities. Idea how, how that surprises me. It's like right? you're so good at this shit. It's like you're doing 16 things at the same time. Right. So and one so, of them is has fallen, but I've done one and didn't do the 15, right? Ab so, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So we end up affirming all of these things onto our identity. But I I have to say I let them believe that because it's works. Do you? No, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's what I was doing all the time to the point where I, I just wasn't used to a different self-concept, a different idea of myself. It's also why, and you and I, when we sat together before, we spoke about romantic relationships a little bit, but I really had to stop 
speaking this story onto my identity that I'm avoidant in terms of attachment. So most people in the room might be familiar with attachment styles. And I, I think because of the rise of therapy being so accessible, especially on social media, et cetera, we're able to self-reflect and self-question and, you know, find ways to describe our behaviors. But I think it can also be very easy to take on those labels and to tell yourself that this is ultimately who you are. So for me, coming across the idea of being avoidant attachment, which means that you find it difficult to let people in, you know, you're probably hyper independent. I was hyper independent for a lot of my life because I had to be independent from a very, very young age and being raised by a single mother. I kind of learned this idea that you do things yourself unless mm. you absolutely need to ask for help mm. you don't ask for help mm. and she didn't she didn't say that explicitly but i that's what i saw so in letting people in letting a man love me i would find myself in cycles again similar to when i was drinking when things would just be going well or seemingly too well, or it's someone that actually honors me on many levels, not just in sex or sensual intimacy, but actually my mind, my being, who I am as a person, mm. I would just feel very uncomfortable, almost suspicious. So I would need to find something wrong with the person so that they can, so that I can make peace with the fact that I'm going to have to leave you now. <laughs> I, know, I know this so I know, well. You know I know it. I <laughs> I mean, did you did right? you get did you get yeah you get those moments where two weeks in you go like um I might as well set a few traps here <laughs> okay so you know she gets a little pissed off with this I might as well just piss her off a little more so she explodes in my face and then I have an excuse I mean I'm not I've not decided to leave yet mm -hmm. but you know why not if you know if she does explode so that would then, be the yeah. pattern for you as well. No, I, I had, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm now madly in love finally, but uh, yeah, but I, but I have to say it's been quite an interesting journey because I'll be very open about it. I, I, I have struggled to find the person that I feel deserves for me to be madly in love with them. And I had a wonderful marriage for so long. And so in my mind, and I say that with a lot of love and respect for the women that blessed my life, but there were, there were always mismatches right? That were significant. Mm. And it doesn't mean that there was anything wrong with them, by the way, they were wonderful. I mean, uh, you know, perhaps if they met another person, they would be their absolute dream of that other person. But for me, there was a mismatch. And in a, in a very interesting way, because of the pressure that my life put on me, my ultimate need to have someone in my life was that they support me, not drain me. Mm. Right. And, mm. and, and it's a, it's a very, logical view of a topic like love which is not logical at all but but to me very quickly if i'm going through the incredibly demanding travel life and writing life and podcasting life and you know you have to always be in the right mood in the right mindset you can't be on stage having just finished a fight with someone and go talk about happiness and and you know and it's it really was quite I mean, I, I, I recall that very vividly where I had, yeah, where I had reason, reasonable conversations with women that blessed, blessed my life where I would say, can we please fight after the talk? Like, you know, it really, it really makes a massive difference for my mood and my mindset to be talking about happiness when I'm happy. Yeah. Right. And I, I have to admit after 
after my marriage, when I started to, to go out and seek another person to come and be in my life, yeah, it was very, very, very challenging because after a while you start to sort of get traumatized. So you prejudge the other person before they come in and you start to say, maybe I should upfront say that I'm not looking for something serious or that I'm, you know, this is something, this is only casual or this or that. When in reality, what I've always, always was looking for is a committed relationship, right? But I'm doing that because it just gives you a, and a door you can open in two and three weeks time and say, but we spoke about this, yes. right? Uh, and I think that to me was probably the biggest form of self-sabotage ever, because in a very interesting way, most of those, if they were su not supposed to happen, why did I let them happen at all? Mm. And, you know, if, if you, if you quickly, I mean, that changed in the last three or four years, very drastically, because if you, if, if you quickly notice that someone is not a perfect fit. The right way to do it is to simply say, hey, by the way, we're two weeks in yes. and there is not there's something that we need to talk about. And if that's, you know, in, in my very last one before my current beautiful relationship, it was literally eight days in where I, you know, everything's going well, but there was one fundamental values difference. And I said, can we sit down and talk about this? And her point of view was like, no, this is a very important value for me. And I said, but it's a very important value for my, for me, uh, you know, the opposite is very important for me. And yeah, eight days in, we said, mm -hmm, interesting, not going to work out. Thanks you for being so open so early. And, you know, it changes a lot of things. Yeah. I thank you for, for Wh whose podcast is this? <laughs> <laughs> it's just a quick reminder. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I, I really appreciate when people um, just say things like that out loud because I, I think there's so much shame when it comes to romantic love and oh, relationships and where, where we get things wrong and also where we get things right. And I resonate so much with what you're saying around actually if you notice, and I think we really do very early, especially anyone that is self-aware, I know that I have, have always known in previous relationships that this is not the person. Yeah. And I don't think that was from a place of me just wanting to sabotage something good necessarily. It was always because of those fundamental values that sometimes I didn't have the language for. Yeah. I wasn't able to describe it at the time, but I could viscerally feel it that there's a disconnect here. Maybe we have the chemistry, maybe we have sexual chemistry, maybe we have, you know, that intellectual alignment, whatever it might be. But when it comes to the fundamental things, there's something incongruent. But I think growing up in the environment that I did where all of us were conflict avoidant because approaching or trying to bring any conflict or any dissatisfaction to the table meant physical violence, mm. you know? So conflict, you, yeah. you, you didn't deal with conflict. You mm. just, unless the conflict was coming from my father and we just had to handle it, then that's fine. But it was never the other way around. Yeah. So I learned to be conflict avoidant from a very young age, which means being very passive aggressive, mm. you know, which means noticing things, but then making the other person oh, wrong yeah. for the things you notice. Mm -hmm. So I think that was the biggest kind of aha for me in, in realizing just the intricacies of where I was sabotaging myself with alcohol. It was one thing, but it was so much deeper than that. The, the kind of 
glue that was holding all of it together was conflict avoidance. I think that's spot on. That is spot on. I mean, you know, generally, maybe different than you and I, but Mm -hmm. I think generally, especially in relationships, it's a lot of things, you know, there is, you know, sometimes you tell yourself, maybe I should just make it work, right? Maybe Mm -hmm. I shouldn't talk about this. Or sometimes you say, um, oh, well, you know, they're so sweet. I, I shouldn't break their hearts. Or, you know, as you rightly said, you know, sex is so good. I mean, let's, I can forget about the other things, right? And I, I think the whole idea is, I, I you know, is, is to be able to define that it doesn't have to be confrontational to have a conflict. Right. You, you know what I mean? It's, it's actually yes. quite nice to say, hey, by the way, buddy, um, you know, the, the sex is amazing, but you're stupid. <laughs> So, I have, uh, uh, nobody is going to tell you you're stupid, Africa. This is not going to work. But no, but I actually had, I had quite a few conversations recently. I mean, I, I ran a whole, whole mini series on love and romance. Yes. And, and it's quite interesting how every one of us will have that one person that they remember where the sex was amazing and everything else was wrong. Mm. Right. And you just go like, okay. Um, actually, one of the most eye-opening experiences for me when I was when I vowed to uh, to celibacy. I, I was a, a monk for nine months. Uh, yeah, coming out of a very deep heartbreak, to be honest. Not heartbreak because I don't think it was love, but I felt so deceived. And man, it flipped my approach to relationships because suddenly, for the first time you took sex out of the equation. So I would meet someone and I would say, look, if you're interested, I think will be amazing, but that will be June. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, interestingly, of course, by the way, the, I'm at least the female psyche that I was faced with was like, every one of them was like, <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. It's like, I'm my target now is I'm going to get him in November. Right. <laughs> right? So, but, but, uh, but no, but very quickly when you actually say to yourself, I'm going to delay this, even a few, you know, even six or seven times, you know, dates or whatever, suddenly you realize, holy cow, this person's right. not for me at all. Right. And it's just works really interesting. Conflict avoidance. So when, when we go out and we get blackout on a Friday night, what conflict are we avoiding in that case? Conflict with others or with ourselves? For me, I think it was, it was always with myself. Mm. It was always with myself. And then eventually it projects itself the other way around. But I, I think, I think I, I just always had this thing of feeling bad that, and I'll tell you specifically what I mean by that, because growing up in the environment that I did in the home that I did, I was made to believe, and I I always want to be very careful when I talk about my past and the home that I grew up in, because I think it's very easy to speak when you're speaking retrospectively and you're kind of trying to put pieces together. It's always tempting to create like a neat story of, you know, victim oppressor dynamic. But it was very complex because even though my father could be extremely violent, and I mean extremely violent, he was also an incredible man. He was so charming. He was so charming and he was so stylish. I always remember even as a little girl, when my dad, Maxwell, would walk into a room with his big afro and his suit and his briefcase. He was a teacher for a long time. He he was just the most brilliant, brilliant man. And I saw him very quickly decline into his addiction, but it really was 
one of the first places where I had to learn how to hold multiple truths, which is something that I speak about a lot in my work now and everything that I do, because I had to do that with my dad. So even though the home was very violent at times, it was also very beautiful a lot of the time. And I, I had two older sisters, one younger brother. And because we were in Zimbabwe, we had a yard, we had some land and you don't have to be rich or anything to have land. It's just your home where you live. So we spent a lot of time playing, climbing trees, etc. So there was so much joy and so much pain and darkness in my life. But I really do believe that I was able to, all of us just grew up in the home just thinking that our needs were bad. We just, you don't have the right to yeah, have Yeah, no, needs, no, no. Yeah. You, you don't have any needs. And again, unless something is very, very wrong, physical, unless something is physically wrong and you've hurt yourself in a really bad way, then you ask for help. Then you bother your dad. Then you bother your mom. But it, it, there was just this feeling like you're bothering people. Yeah, it's like, um, I'm sorry, I broke my neck. Can you <laughs> yeah, you know, your neck <laughs> hanging off and can, then, can, then yeah. you ask for help, yeah. okay? But there was always this feeling of your needs are bad. So again, as I'm getting older and I have to express my needs in, in a relationship with you, let's say it was romantically or in a relationship with a friend, I have to express my needs. I have to say what it is that I want. I have to communicate when I'm unhappy mm. with something. But I, I wasn't able to do that for whatever reason, even with all the work that I've done, everything that I've read or whatever it might be, I feel some kind of fear. I'm always curious about why do I feel afraid? Mm. Do I feel afraid because the risk is far too big? Do I feel afraid because a part of me feels like I'm not allowed to talk about this? For example, there's so many conversations happening right now societally where a lot of us feel like we're not allowed to have an opinion. Some people feel like they don't have the right identity because I'm white. I can't speak about this because I'm not part of the LGBT community. I can't have an opinion on this because I'm not an immigrant. I can't have an opinion on this, whatever it might be. We're, we're in a very identity first world right now. So a lot of us are holding back for many different reasons. So I get curious about what my reason is in that moment in time. And if I do find that I'm afraid because I'm going to be punished for it in some way, I don't judge myself for that. I almost kind of go into witness mode. I just observe and I'm like, huh, that's interesting. I don't overattach to it and make it mean something deep or that um, some kind of shame. But then also what I will do now, because my risk tolerance is much higher, I will allow myself to have an opinion if I feel that it's appropriate, if I know what I'm talking about, because sometimes it's not always useful to externalize an opinion or an idea that you have. So I might just toy with it in my own mind and allow for myself to kind of work with it in my own mind without necessarily externalizing it. So yeah, I, I think I know the difference between when I'm self-censoring or when I'm just using a social filter. And if I am self-censoring, I get curious about why. Every time I screw up, okay, I don't tell myself, don't do it again. I just keep telling myself, how will you do it next time? Yes. And it's quite yes. interesting that constant, you know, because it brings something really interesting to the forefront when you, when you make a mistake and then you upset someone and then you can go back and apologize. And then the next time you want to do something or say something, you can say it differently, but it also tells you that you're still alive, even though you messed up. 
Yes. It's so interesting, yes. right? Yes. Uh, and, you know, as, as long as your intentions and right are right and you're saying something lovingly and kindly, what ends up happening is, yes, you may disagree on what you said, but you don't disagree on the connection. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you don't disagree on like, oh, he's saying this to try to hurt me, yeah. right? And I, I think this is, uh, this is a very useful technique is to allow yourself to say, by the way, the way you deliver a message is as important as what the message is. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Can, can you, can you, because I want to move to, you made a comment I can't let go of. Oh. Okay. But I, I want to move there, but I want to ask you first, if you were to summarize your top learnings, tips, sort of American style, like here are three things you can do. Uh, so, so for those who are finding themselves stuck in a cycle of addiction or a cycle of self-sabotage or your story took you through seven trials to get out of there before you got to find your way. What would be your top tips? Like if someone is listening to this and saying, yes, I am in the place where Africa was and I want to find my way out, what would you tell them? I always want to be mindful with when I'm giving answers to questions like this because I addiction is such a heavy and very serious thing that most people most people will never ever understand it's not one of those things and I, I I will give an answer it's not one of those things where someone just thinks maybe I'm just drinking a little bit and I just need to to not it's it's not in the gray so much if we're talking about the extreme that I faced and maybe most people do but I think just like with anything, and I 12-step programs do this very well, even though I didn't go through one myself, it really has to be just a, a non-negotiable acceptance of your level of suffering. That's what it has to be. It, it just, there's there's no way around it. You know, I I wish there was some other unique special answer, but there's there is no way around it. For such a long time, I convinced myself that I was a gray area drinker, which means I thought it was just moderation. I just need to moderate a little bit, or I just need to change the people that I'm around. And then, you know, it's going to get better. But it wasn't that. It wasn't that. I I was an addict the moment that I started. And I always say that my Addiction didn't care if I was at a baby shower, if I was at work, if I was, it it didn't care about the environment, you know. So I really had to accept, I had to accept that I'm not a grey area drinker. I don't just want to have one drink or two. I want to go all the way every single time. And there was so much pain and destruction in my life. And I could no longer pretend that it was just some kind of rite of passage. I'm young. So I think just a non-negotiable acceptance and then choice follows that, you know, what am I going to do now? Am I going to stop completely? Am I going to kind of play the moderation game for a little while? And then the next thing is community because you can't do this alone. You can't. I, I think it's very easy to think that you can, but you can't. Even if it's going to just one meeting, even if you think your problem is not that bad or someone is listening to this right now and they're thinking, you know what, when I go out, I I don't go out all the time. I don't drink every day. But when I do drink, I find it so difficult to stop. I'll have one drink and then I, I, I can't seem to turn it off after that. 
that's worth paying attention to. And it doesn't mean that you go to AA straight away or that you need to go to rehab, but there's a level of acceptance that has to take place and then a choice needs to follow. And then community. And in the age of technology, community can look like going onto YouTube and seeing how other people got sober. Mm. Community can be, I think it's incredible the access that we have to community today without even needing to leave your home, mm. you know? Mm. So I think if anything that I have said in this conversation in relation to sobriety or addiction has sort of piqued anyone's interest or made you feel uncomfortable, there's something there that needs to be looked at. So I, I think acceptance is the unsexy, but very sexy answer to me. I think it's the best answer ever. I think yeah. it all starts with that level of awareness of the reality. Right, this is where I am, this is what it is. And yeah, ac acceptance, I, I think the choice of the word is not, I accept that I will be there forever, but I accept that this is where I am right now. You yes. know, I think that really matters. That's beautiful. Okay, so let's let's talk about your next work and you just dropped it in there. Can we do that? Can we talk about your next book? Yes. Yeah, okay. My so, first one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, yeah, you're next coming you up. Yeah, I keep, yeah, I mean, anyway. Thank you for that. Man. Yeah, I'm, so, so the, the, uh, you, you said that society's uh, censorship is becoming mm -hmm. quite uh, reflective of our own, you know, but it's really getting to extremes. Mm. And in a very interesting way that I think society is self-sabotaging in, mm. in so many ways. Which is why I, I call it collective sabotage. Some yeah. people call it cancel culture. I, I call it collective sabotage. Okay, I will shut up and let you speak about no, that. No no, 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 I mean it. That's such an interesting way of calling it. So, yeah, I, I, I will self-censor myself. Self-censor myself. No. <laughs> so, okay, social filter. <laughs> collective sabotage, what is that? So I, about five years ago, because I've been researching and studying self-sabotage now for seven years. So from the moment that I decided that I was going to get sober, about a year after, I fell kind of headfirst into the world of psychology because, again, I needed to get well. 12 steps didn't work for me. I, I think it's incredible because it's worked for so many people I know. Um, but for whatever reason, actually, I know the reason. I, I didn't feel comfortable saying my name is Africa and I'm an addict because I, I am careful about the things that I speak onto my identity. I believe that addiction is something that I experienced. I don't believe that I am an addict. So again, it's language that works for other people, but it just didn't work for me. So I needed to find unconventional ways to get sober. And as someone that has always loved to learn and to read, I'm a I'll always be a lifelong student, regardless of whatever worldly titles I wear. So when I came across the concept of self-sabotage and then discovered Jungian psychology and the shadow, I realized five years after that there was something happening culturally. Again, if you think about it through the, the definition that I gave before of self-sabotage being when your behavior and what you say you want are in direct conflict. There's like a huge undeniable contradiction. I had fallen into several social justice spaces at the time, which I'm very grateful for. I'm still part of a lot of them, but because the work that I was doing in sobriety was labeled as activism, even though I never called it that, I just found myself sort of being parts of certain conversations, et cetera, et cetera. And I started to notice that 
a lot of people, including myself, slowly, slowly, a lot of us were saying that we wanted open conversation. A lot of us were saying that we were fighting for more tolerance, but we were using very intolerant methods, extremely intolerant methods, to the point where people couldn't ask questions. If you didn't have the right identity, really take that in. If you don't have the right identity, you can't ask a question. If you're not white, you can't ask a question. You don't get to have an opinion. And I, I, I found myself agreeing that that was normal when I knew, I truly knew that it, there's nothing normal about telling people that they don't have a right to have an opinion on something or to just simply ask a question or to point out a contradiction if or, they... Or to disagree Or outright. to disagree. And we're, we're all people that are on the same mission. But again, they were just little things here and there that eventually kind of compounded and they got worse over time. I think post-2016, our most intimate lives started to become so heavily politicized and we feel it so intensely now. Everything is seen and experienced through the lens of politics. So I just started to notice that it was becoming very difficult to have conversations with people, to disagree, to just not have the same opinion. People were kind of uh, judged as either being left or right, which is something I think as an immigrant, I have never really understood yeah. or even yeah. associated <laughs> yeah. with as an we immigrant. We never had left or right in our <laughs> country, so we don't know. No. Yeah. So when people would start to say, oh, that's a left that's a left wing opinion or that's a right wing opinion, I had no f***ing idea what people meant. I still meant. don't. Yeah, Me neither. Uh, honestly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I just started to notice that over time it was becoming, even with some people in my life who I'd known for a very long time, let's say we're at a lunch and I, I would have friends of mine preface sentences with things like, as a white woman, or say things to me like, for you as a marginalized person. So I, I would I started to think, why, why are people speaking in this way, which is not, sort of no it's not the way normal people speak it's not yeah it's not real english it's not real yeah. english <laughs> but there's kind of this twitter speak this social justice speak was sort of embedded in everything but again i i just started to notice the public shaming that was happening online again through positioned as progress but it was extremely regressive yeah. so again as someone that has been looking at self-sabotage and the tendencies that we have to kind of contradict and to get in the way of our goals goals, independent goals or collective goals, I just started to notice that there was a very, very big problem, something that really disturbed my spirit in a lot of ways, something that was fracturing relationships. I had just never in my lifetime, and even people that I have known who are in their 40s, 60s, younger people, had just never witnessed that level of division and polarization on a global scale, fueled by te technology as well. So the work that I do now is wanting to understand the psychology behind collective sabotage. Some people call it cancel culture, but I don't find the term cancel culture useful because it has been politicized. And I think it will either preach to the choir, people who are like, yeah, everyone's woke everyone yeah, and that's not useful or people that think it doesn't exist cancel culture doesn't exist <laughs> it's people 
what is kind of the the thing people say we're just trying to hold people accountable people in power etc there's kind of a script that people tend to follow on either sides of the spectrum so i i just think language like collective sabotage for me as someone that really has been researching this stuff heavily for a very long time and takes my work very seriously i just find that it's a more useful term to describe what is happening so i'm i'm writing a book called the third perspective and it's going to be an invitation for people to just get curious about the gray a little bit more i truly believe that every single person on this planet is an embodiment of a third perspective i don't think we have to choose whether we're left or right i don't believe that we have to choose whether we're pro or anti i really don't believe that at all and that's a that's an area where i'm so willing to be misunderstood so willing Yeah. You you go from self-censorship to upsetting everyone. That's it. Yeah. That's um, really interesting because yeah. I I'll, I'll tell you my 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 personal view of the world of course always comes from science and and mathematics yes. and yes. and and it's actually quite shocking for most people that when the scientific method originally was all about in, you know empowering our curiosity with data and information and analysis and so on very quickly we had a cancel culture in science. I mean if if you object yes. to Darwin you're screwed. You're never going to be published. Nobody's ever going to. When in reality, Darwin himself had some, you know, had his own doubts about certain things. And, you know, scientists were actually invited in his own writing to go and investigate those things. But it seems that humanity has that tendency of, I call it systemic bias in mathematics. When when you keep trying to improve a system over and over and over, you, get, you take an engine and you try to squeeze 10 horsepower more and 10 horsepower more and 10 horsepower, right? And eventually the engine will burn. Right. And I think what's happening, which shocks me, is that a movement that started by give us more freedom ends up in a place where nobody has any freedom at all. Right. It's like we're all pre-programmed. These are the exact words you have to. What did you say? A marginalized person. What does that mean? These scripts. Yeah, like there are it. scripts and you have to say them in specific order. And if you refer to a hair band, you know, you're sort of offending me. And if you're right, it's like, what's going on, people? And and I, I have to admit, you know, of course, this comes from a world that has lacked compassion for a while. Okay. But the objective is, you know, if you're, if you're pushing in the direction of making the world better, then you get to that point and then you, you basically embody what you're supposed to be standing for. Right. Right. So, so the book is to expose this or to fix it? To fix it. Go I, for it. I How think, do we do that? Well, I, The reason why I wanted to write this and, and with my work and anything that I do, I think the why is important. And in the context of what we're talking about, it's very easy to assume that the why is the culture war. But I, I think that's a simplistic way of looking at things. I think and know after having worked with thousands and thousands of people at this point in time, people need the how. You know, yeah. people absolutely need the house. So the subtitle of the book is Brave Expression in the Age of Intolerance, because I think we have we have become so intolerant and a lot of us have good intentions. Even those very people that are fueling cancel culture or collective sabotage, a lot of them do have good intentions. Yeah. A lot of movements have started because of injustice, because people are truly marginalized. Not in the past, people still are. But I think there has been an overcorrection, a, a serious overcorrection, actually. 
And I think a lot of us are getting very nervous. We're constantly walking on eggshells, terrified of saying the wrong thing. And where it worries me is when you have people that are in leadership positions, and I work with a lot of leaders, and this includes teachers, this includes parents. If you are terrified to speak your mind or ask a question, what does that mean for the younger generation? And I, I think that's why this book is, it's not a rant by any means. It's acknowledging the landscape that we're in, but it's giving people the how in a very practical way. I'm really bringing all my intellectual property as a practitioner, as a consultant, as a mentor, as a writer, as a researcher, and giving people actual practical tools that they can integrate because... I think we've been in the why for far too long. I don't think people are stupid. I think we can all see what's happening. But I, I, I really crave practicality. So it's a lot around brave expression and communication and identifying what your risk capacity is. What are you actually trying to say? And why are, why are you so afraid? Why do we find ourselves so afraid? So that's what I hope to accomplish. I, I think this actually is spot on with what what, we, what we've discussed. You know, mm. you, you take something like the conflict in Israel Palestine, and yes. the um, amount of fear around saying anything about it. I'm, I stand publicly and I go like, you know what? Stop killing children. Yes. I don't think any human being agree, disagrees with this. Mm. Stop killing children. You can. You guys can go in a, in another room or another place kill each other. It's your choice. Okay, you can go and we can debate for hours who did what first. But I don't think any two human beings agree that a, a child should be harmed. Like if, you know, if we're walking out of this place and you you see someone hitting a child and killing it, you no human being will say, will stop there and say, maybe he has a good reason why, right? And and I think what's happening in our world today is that we're doing two things. One is we're we're, we're censoring people from speaking right and on the other hand we're 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 flooding the system with talk about issues that are irrelevant right i mean at least at least irrelevant to the topic that really matters and in 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 those in those two ways we end up in a place where we're completely deluded by the truth you know we we just can't find the truth anymore and and you know in a again going back to science it was that first guy that stood up and said hey uh, uh it's actually not flat, right? It is actually, I mean, there's a lot of evidence that it's round. And if I'm wrong, by the way, tell me if I'm wrong, right? And, you know, the idea of don't talk about it is in a very interesting way. It's putting society in a place where we become slaves. We become idiots to ideologies that get imposed on us when we are not able to even express our, you know, our disagreements with them. It is, you know, of all of the risks that I think our our world is facing today, our inability as humanity to discuss those risks is the biggest risk of all. It's just endless, really. Yeah. But 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 once again, you know, unless you remove that fear, because so many people don't speak because they go like, okay, from an ROI point of view, I may make my my voice heard, but will it change anything? And by the way, will it be worth it? Mm. What What's the cost to me? But that's why I think, um, I think our interpersonal relationships are the best training ground for all of this, because I think it can feel so big. And I, I, I don't think the point in which any of us need to begin, some of us maybe, is with 
sort of the big world issues. Look in your home, yeah. in your personal relationship yeah. with your child. Where yeah. are you withholding your speech there? Because yeah. I think that, uh, and again, I say this all the time, even to people that I work with, when you're motivated and inspired, it's so easy to want the big audacious platform, right? In which you finally unravel your self-censorship. But what's happening in in the privacy of your own home, in your own bed, in your own relationships at work. Yeah. That's the that to me is the best and most sustainable training ground for all of us. I can't wait, Africa. When is that book out? May next year. May. Mm-hmm. I object to that. Do you want it now? <laughs> I think I have it. No, no, no. And, and is it available for pre-orders? Can our followers? Yes, yeah, it should be. When when will this come out? Anyway, whenever people listen, it, it hopefully it will be. To in say this again in a way that I can put on the podcast. Too. <laughs> so say yes. Go and search for A, B, and C. If you search for Africa Brook, the third perspective, you should be able to find it. And if it's not available now. Just be patient. There's no urgency. It will be soon. Good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I want to uh, close on um, a high note. Very brave with your fashion style. Like, like my I really do. Very brave. No, but also the haircut. I mean, honestly, come on. This is the style, right? Right? People, yes. right? Is that a conscious choice? Oh, yes. Tell me why. Very conscious. Such a good question. So being raised in the part of Africa that I'm raised in, women have bald heads, women have short hair. And since I was a tiny little baby, I've always thought it's just the most beautiful thing. Oh my goodness. I just so beautiful. And when I was growing up, I did have long hair at points, but I also had it shaved at different points as well. But then when I came to the UK, suddenly it was the ugliest thing in the world <laughs> because suddenly I was a little boy from Africa. I didn't say that. The other children did. Okay. Yeah, the blind um, ones. <laughs> <laughs> so I was being told because it was through the Western lens that I was being told that something that I'd always just found so glorious was so ugly. But for whatever reason, that never penetrated my spirit. I never believed that. I never, ever believed that. But growing up, I had all of the hairstyles. My favorite one was a blonde Mohican. No I, I'm way. I'm a punk at heart. Um, no way. I mm -hmm. want to see that. Yeah. Is I'm, that online? I'll send you a photo. But I, can I post it online? <laughs> I'll send you the photo and then we'll we'll see what happens. Okay. But I had, I, I've done all of the things. I had my Mohican, I had braids, I had, but this I always wanted. So when I got sober... I think two months after I got sober, I went to a barber and I shaved it. And yeah, it's the best thing I've ever done. I absolutely love it. I was telling our mutual friend, Simon Salter, that my ritual every Sunday, I'll make my tea because I love loose leaf tea. I'll set up my tea ceremony. I'll put on my favorite robe, very similar to this, and I'll just shave my head. Mm. It's like my Sunday ritual every mm. week. For mm. seven years, every week. Seven years. Mm -hmm. Keep doing it. Oh, I will. Uh, so I, I have. <laughs> I have to say, I. I think the the message it gives me is you redefine beauty, which I think is a mm. very, 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 very strong 
message to all of us who go into addiction and go into all of that need of fitting in, of being on the dance floor, but not completely aware dancing because we're told we're not supposed to look this way. And I think your, your, your message is so strongly saying, Hey, I look the way I am. I look the way I feel inside. I look the way I stand for, and this is beauty. I mean, it, it, it is not just your physical beauty. It's your ability to say so strongly to the world, this is me. This is me. Love me as I am. I think that's a wonderful, wonderful message. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, again, I'm fully receiving that your words really do land exactly where they need to. I'm just so grateful that we've connected and to be on this mission together, which I truly believe that we are, is an absolute pleasure and a joy. I love you too. Thank you. The role of social media. I think social media has become, I'd say, unfortunately, such a massive part of culture, how we consume information, how we put out content. The view that I take on that is that it's somehow Africa you spoke beautifully on sort of this ability to hold two truths. And I think social media not only seems to lack that ability, but almost encourage and reward polarization, a lack of nuance. Do you think social media can play a constructive and positive role in the third perspective? Such a good question. Such a good question. I think it can, and I think it has to. And the reason why I think it has to is because whether we like it or not, there's no longer as much of a separation from our, our digital world as this one, you know, as we thought there was, especially in a post-pandemic world where a lot of us spent our time online, on social media, connecting with people. And I wonder if it really is about what we are bringing onto these platforms. Of course, there are the algorithms. Of course, we are working with something that is bigger than us in so many ways. But I think if collectively, if what we have is collective sabotage, what would it look like if we're going onto these platforms with the third perspective in mind, with the idea that nuance exists, understanding that a lot of the things that we're seeing are so rid of context. So when you see a clip or when you see a sentence or something that is being said, realize that it's part of a larger whole. Also realize that you don't have to respond. You don't have to have an opinion. So I think I, I really don't have this um, sort of cynical view of social media, which I think I did at a point in time. I think it's about the individual and then so many of us become the collective. So I think we can actually influence the way things are happening on social media. And I see this with my work. When I started having these conversations about four years ago, some people pushed back, but a lot of people I could see and feel and they shared the relief that they felt. And I rarely get any, if any, pushback at all with my work because I think people are yearning for that grey, people are yearning for the nuance. So I think social media will actually play a very important role in this and it's starting to happen. It is. Yeah, I, I, I would have to agree very strongly. I think social media is made up of two things. One is the platform and the algorithms and all of that. And the other part is the rest of us. And I think the rest of us is the problem, right? Because the algorithm is motivated by nothing other than meeting people's demands. 
So, so you know, we have a tendency to externalize the blame of the world we live in to social media when we are the ones filling social media with crap and responding to the crap that's on social media, right? And it's quite interesting because, so I, I'm, I'm extremely picky when it comes to, so if I swipe on Instagram and, and on something I don't like, I will swipe away two seconds in. Right. And if I, if I don't know what the video is, because the, the algorithm cheats you, tells you, Hey, wait 60 seconds until you know what this is about. If it's not clear up front, I swipe away. And in better flat platforms like YouTube, I will dislike what I don't like. Right. And the idea here is to tell the algorithm very clearly that the, that this is not for me. Because the, what happens is the algorithm shows me more of it, shows a lot of people a lot of crap. And as a result, tells the content creators, create crap, they love the crap. Okay. And I think the, 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 the game here is this. The game is if we decide that to use this platform for good, like I send a lot of stuff to AI where we laugh about and it's a wonderful connection and right, there is use, good use to it. And if we suppress the bad sides of it, if we can speak the third perspective, the, you know, if we can, if we can cover the gray in a respectful way that is not self-censored, then that would be the most amazing platform on earth. The trick is that we are the ones, I mean, as I, as I speak about AI, sometimes I think it applies to social media. There's nothing inherently good or evil about social media, the platform. Okay. There is a lot of interesting good and evil about us and the way we respond to the platform. So, so that to me is uh, more, more. Okay. I have to say, uh, my daughter wants to ask a question. So <laughs> you guys can wait. <laughs> Thanks, Papa. Um, my question is for more directed to Africa, even though what you talked about as the collective sabotage is extremely interesting and so important. But I, I wanted to ask about your transformation with your identity, because you mentioned your shadow self, like you discussed that person that would come out as your shadow self. And I wonder just how did you, like, was there, um, did you come together or is it, did she take the back seat? Was there an event that took place that made you like lose connection to that identity and switch identity or like, I just would love to hear more about it. Yes, such a good question. For me, I had she's to... She's amazing. She's brilliant. <laughs> He's my father. <laughs> and she smells really good too. She does. Have you noticed? Yeah. I did when I hugged her. And she's so, so, so pretty. So beautiful. <laughs> have, you guys have you noticed the Angelina Jolie? <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> Come on. I have the right to. Yeah. Can you be my dad? Oh. <laughs> that sounds wrong. <laughs> I'll answer the question. Um, what I had to do, and it really is a very good question because I, I don't see myself as separate to that Africa at all. I hold so much love and compassion for her. What I had to do was to integrate her. I had to integrate her into the person that I needed to be, into the person that I was becoming and who she is. She had a wildness that I really appreciated, like just a 
a level of courage and audacity and boldness. And I I really did give alcohol and so many other things credit for that. But I've always had access to that. But I think her shadow was that she could use all of these things she had to manipulate, to lie, to cheat, to not show up, to be very unreliable, to value escapism so much over actually being present in the reality of what is. So I I think she had a lot of just wonderful characteristics and qualities that I actually love and I just needed to refine them. And what I've learned about identity is that it's not about casting any parts of yourself away. It's about seeing how you can befriend them, you know, because when you don't, they can become your enemy. And I think she nearly became my enemy for a long time because I just blamed her for not being able to get sober. It's a little bit abstract, but that that truly is how I experienced it. I couldn't just pretend that I'm this person now and that's in the past and I'm no longer that person. I can still be that person, but I know how to use those qualities for good. So I, I don't use my powers for evil these days. Yeah, that's that's what I that's said. Brilliant. Yeah, that is brilliant. So good. I mean, the the fact the fact that you say that she was you that only the, the you know the alcohol allowed her to show up. Yes, it was amplifying uh, who which, I this was. This is brilliant because basically you're saying there is this beautiful self within me that I can show without the alcohol. Yes, and that's the whole idea. Yes. Beautiful. I'd I'd like to hone in on your friendship circles throughout those seven pass outs, should we call them? And coming out of it as someone now who's on the other side, are those friends still in your life? And secondly, I guess the fact that, you know, you can almost be with yourself. Do you look at those previous friends as if to say like, what were you even doing with me? Brilliant question. So good. Everything about my life had to change and my friendship circle was one of those things. But the reality was that by the time I got sober that eighth time, I didn't have many friends left. That was just the reality of it. I had two. One of them was Roxanne, who I wish was here today. She's my best friend. And she really stuck with me, but she gave me an ultimatum pretty much, that she wasn't able to continue this relationship and this sisterhood unless something changed. And there was my boyfriend, Billy at the time, who's still a wonderful friend. And he also, even though he was a very conflict avoidant person, he also gave me that same ultimatum. So I didn't get sober for myself. I got sober for Roxanne and Billy. Those were the two friends that I had left. Every other person that I had called a friend, I had never seen them in the daytime unless we had spent time in the evening and then just hadn't slept for a day or two or three. So there was the realization that I didn't have many friends, but the two, even if it was just two that I had at the time, I was so grateful for their love and it allowed me to stay sober. And then also what was beautiful about it, because I think the friendship piece can be the part that um, a lot of people find difficult. The most freeing thing was that I could make friends who could meet me where I was. I could make friends who I didn't have to over explain why I'm not drinking. I just don't drink. So I really had to embody that idea 
of being a non-drinker. I was able to do that. And even though, again, I know the friendship part can be the most difficult for people, there was that liberation that came with being able to meet people at eye level who I didn't have to over-explain my journey to. But again, I, I didn't need that many people to be on that journey with me, even just one person, let alone two people that still loved me and cared so deeply. That was enough for me at the time. And then to your second question, you know what? I, I It could have been very easy for me actually to blame the people that I was friends with, to kind of look at them as the people that made me drink in the way that I did, made me party in the way that I did, because that's very easy to do, to externalize the blame or the responsibility. But I didn't do that. I think because I had relapsed so many times, I had seen the loss in my life. I had seen the chaos in my life. I was left on my knees in such a way where I couldn't avoid personal responsibility. And it was interesting because I learned that I was the enabler, apparently. It turned out that I'm the pusher. I'm the one that pushes people to drink, not the other way around. So I I didn't, I couldn't externalize the blame. I understood why we had all chosen each other to be party friends, to drug together, to dance together. And we had a lot of fun. It was what I needed at that time. I think I was also able to look at it in that way. Those friends are what I needed at that time. All of those reckless nights, there were so many of them that were fun. Not all of them ended in chaos and destruction, even though internally it kind of always did for me. But they allowed for me to see different parts of myself. They allowed for me to feel connected. So I was able to, and because I kind of experienced the world and people through characteristics and qualities and traits, I was able to realize that there were a lot of those things that I picked up from those friends that I still carry today. So I think I had to humanize them, but that only happened because I was sort of humanizing myself, but I, I had to take full responsibility. There was no, there was no blame blaming my father. There was no blaming those friends. I, I had to take full responsibility for for my suffering and, and sobriety. Got it. Thank you so much. I, I, thank you. I love that bit when you said you could have been the bad friend. Yes. That's mm. so interesting. Oh, yes. Yes. And, and may I just one final one, knowing where you are now, both of you on stage, you guys are vibrating on different frequencies. I want to say that. Is life lonely? What knowing, knowing what you know, feeling what you felt and understanding how flawed we are as humans. Why don't you save me and take that one? <laughs> I, I think you... I, I'm, I, I was the loneliest man alive until I fell in love a month and a half ago. I'll tell you that openly. I was the loneliest man on earth. It's just, especially when you're, when you're driven by a mission to make a change, by definition, that means the change is not yet, there yet. And that by definition means you're a man against the world. It's so interesting because you look, you look at, I mean, Simon's introduction was like, my travel style is like the Rolling Stones. It really is. I mean, I travel 240 days a year at least. And, and you know, I'm so driven so driven because I really think our world needs what I'm talking about. And then you, you just show up and you connect deeply to people that you will never see again. And then you show up again 
and then you show up again and then you go on social media and you know i made that weird promise of trying to answer every question that i ever get and so it really was daunting because i'm making a hundred connections a day that are not human connections they're social media connections and you know i started to use techniques like voice notes so that I can actually be a human with them and they would respond back in voice notes and it would ease my loneliness a tiny bit, right? But it's quite interesting because there is a difference between alone and lonely, right? The, you know, there is a difference between feeling the pain of loneliness hmm, or feeling that you would hope to get the support. And I think I was on the second one. You know, I was, I was more into that place where, where I really wanted to galvanize the whole world, basically to wake up and travel with me or stay where they are and just help somehow. But our world is very busy. Okay. Our world is never really, is never really aware of what the more important bits are. You know, maybe I'm wrong if, if I think of them they're as important, but what, what ends up happening, however, is that it doesn't matter because I will tell you I'm the luckiest man alive. It doesn't matter when you really, really know what you're standing for. This is why I asked you the question at the beginning. When you really know what you're standing for, I couldn't ask for a different life. I honestly couldn't, you know, it, there is a price we pay each and every one of us when we wake up in the morning and we go somewhere to do something. Okay. There is a price you pay to get to work. There is a price you pay. There is, you know, to find, to meet your friends, you, there is a price to pay, but it's not about the price. It's about the ROI. It's about what you get back for the price that you pay. And I'll tell you openly, I wouldn't change a thing, right? I'll, I'll do this for the rest of my life if I have to. <laughs> Uh, it's it's my That's podcast, beautiful. by the way. <laughs> You're the guest. <laughs> but by, by the way, I love that idea of from now on, I basically will do podcasts and have the audience ask the question. So yeah. I, I do the intro and then I sit back. Yes, 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 yes. You should. No, I am not lonely. No, I solitude is my default. I love my own space. I love my own time. And I love being with people in sort of intimate, smaller groups. But I'm not lonely at all. I'm so grateful to be loved by, and I don't, here's the thing, similar to what I said about Roxanne and Billy, I don't need that many people in my life in order for me to feel loved. Not at all. It's about the depth of my relationships. I have a very small friendship group. And when I meet people, it can take me a little while to kind of um, really lean fully into that friendship. But sometimes I meet people and I feel like I've known them a lifetime. I'm not over attached to how much I speak to someone. For me, it's just about the depth. But I think because I, I, I really have learned how to hold myself internally, I really don't feel lonely. I think I'm finding myself at a point in time in my life where I feel open and more grounded to share my life with someone else romantically in terms of partnership. So that feels really good. But I, yeah, no, I, I feel very nourished. I feel very fulfilled and I feel very whole. And yeah, it, it's a beautiful thing. This last comment means you don't have one? No. What's wrong with men? 
Okay, so I, <laughs> africabrook.com. Uh, right. <laughs> Send your applications and we'll, uh, Mo will go through them. <laughs> more, more, yes. Um, one thing that I really found interesting is this, I think, increasing separation within society. Yeah. And it even has an impact on me. I, I'm a humanist by nature. But I would lie if I said, like, I'm not more critical than ever before towards certain things in society, right? Things that should not upset me, things that I get upset about when people complain about it. And I mean, during yeah. your time in Africa, you might confirm that people in Africa, they have actual problems. They don't have the time to complain about <laughs> banal things as we do, as I yeah. used to do much more in the past. And... Um, Obviously, I try to understand how this is possible to pull off on a global scale. Social media is one of the reasons, right? But it all comes down, I think, to the companies, the politicians, whoever is in charge to exploit all our psychological flaws, biases in the most intelligent, sophisticated way, right? And this kind of brings me to my question, because I think it's very difficult to change a generation with evolved brains. It's much easier if you have a son of 10, five years, six years, because they're learning. But the question I have is, firstly, what's happening to those children right now? For that reason, I'm actually happy that you published that book. And secondly, is there actually a way on a global scale again to change the minds of the evolved brains already, right? Because, and I see it with myself, and I think you alluded to it before, Mo, I think the the thing that can kill society is the ability or the lack of ability of critical thinking. Yeah. I don't really think that we have a free speech problem. Yeah, there are some people who are shut down, but we have a problem that most people completely forget how important this is, the ability to think critically. Because then certain narratives wouldn't even have a chance to survive because people would just question, they form their own opinion. And I don't even think you have to be intelligent for that. Yeah. Like I talk with very educated people about the Palestina-Israel conflict. They ask me what I think about this. And I actually gave pretty much the same answer. And they're like, yeah, but what, what do you think about Palestina? What do you think about Israel? They want yeah. me to pick the, a side. Yeah, I'm a humanist. I don't care. I know that war has incentives and motives for certain institutions, politicians whatsoever. Yeah, Things that I can't influence. But I generally care about the people who suffer there. So... How can you for yourself, but also maybe for society, change those pre-planted pre, pre and existing beliefs, if at all? And then secondly, how do you make sure that you teach the next generation to intelligently navigate through that environment? Social media, all those narratives that they are meant to believe. How do they get the ability to think critically and actually change the world? I think it's such a big question and I I wonder if and you can tell me what you think and you can also tell me if you think this is too simplistic but I from what I can see in just the corner of the internet and the conversation that I'm in is through open conversation the I've I've seen that even from an open letter that I wrote 4 years ago which I was pretty much around what we're talking about now but within months, it was read by millions of people and thousands of people from all over the world were sending me emails and messages and their thoughts that they, it felt like a permission slip 
for people. They didn't know that they were allowed to ask questions like this. They didn't know that as a black person, they could think in this way because they've been told that they should think and speak in a very specific way. So I think it's the long game, but I think the more and more people that are willing to take those emotional risks openly, I think it can influence something. I think something can happen. And, And again, I don't know if this is a simplistic answer, but I guess I can only answer it from the plane that I am in right now. But I also think there's something happening within education. And it surprises me that critical thinking is not something that is taught in education. So maybe there's a complete overhaul that needs to happen there. Or is it by design that people are not supposed to think critically? So in fact, I feel like I have more questions than answers to what you're saying. But I think the conversation piece for me is very important. We need more people that are either have existing platforms or are willing to be more open about this fight for free expression and bold expression, audacious expression. And I think if we're in this for the long game, eventually that allows for people to see that there is room to speak and that you get to ask questions and that you don't have to take everything you're fed hook, line and sinker, that you can say, actually, no, I don't agree with that. You know, what do you think? It's my podcast. (laughs) <laughs> don't ask questions no uh, so uh, this is the most brilliant question ever i my, my teacher on the topic i hosted here on slow-mo a couple of years ago um, a, data, a data scientist for phds uh, called rebecca costa and rebecca wrote a book called the uh, fisherman's rant and and she she looked back at societies that collapsed you know the mayans the romans and so on and her conclusion was so beautifully purified and simplified. She said, when the complexity of the system built by a society exceeds the intelligence of its citizens, the society will reset. Okay. So I will tell you, we will reset. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that this will collapse, right? But it will collapse in one of two ways. One way is to assume that this is just a pendulum swing. So we went from a society where there was so much oppression of freedom of expression in reality, right? You know, we said we can be free to speak about whatever we want to speak about. But if you were gay, for example, you had no right to tell the world about that, mm. right? If you, you know, we were, we, 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 we pre- pretended that we have human rights, but if you were black, for example, you had no rights in certain societies and so on. So, so you took a pendulum swing all the way to the other side and it's understandable. You know, you just give people a a breather and they go like, you know what? I want all my freedoms and I want you to give me back all of the years that have been wasted when I wasn't free. As a matter of fact, I want you to give me the, all of the freedoms that were, you know, deprived from other humans since the beginning of society. So, so there is a pendulum swing and then the the pendulum will swing back. Okay. And it may swing back in one of two ways. Sadly, it may swing, swing back in an explosion, right? Where you will suddenly, unfortunately, it's what my expectation is, where everyone will just go, you know what, fuck you all. I'll just say whatever I want and I don't care, right? And, and you know, that would lead to more chaos, if you ask me. Hmm? The hope is that we, we go back and say, 
with reason. Yeah, this is amazing. We all agree on the objective and the objective is we want equality, we want diversity, we want uh, freedom of expression, we want to be heard, we want to allow for critical thinking. How can we, uh, uh, you know, do that by allowing us a different style of conversation? So this is scenario one where it comes from the bottom up. Hmm? Grassroots, we all say we're sick of this and we start to find nice ways to talk about it. Okay, like like me trying to say openly, look, don't get me into the political debate. I'm not interested in politics. I don't know anything about politics. I don't want to take, you know, sides in something I don't really understand. Do not kill children. Right. This is, you know, if anyone finds themselves questioning what I'm saying, then I honestly don't care about their opinion. Right. So, so, so this is, there is ways to do that. My fear and, you know, I'm, I'm generally an optimist is that we're heading in the opposite direction. We're heading in a direction where unfortunately idiocracy has a commercial value and a political value. Okay. So, so there is unfortunately going to be more desire to make us more of more idiots. Okay. And again, it would play out in one of two ways. One is the flood of irrelevant information that we're seeing today, or the other is a nation state that forces everything. Okay. And both of those, in my personal view, are very, very likely. As a matter of fact, not one, but but both at the same time. You're going to continue with the evidence of AI taking over our lives and, and social media to see more and more and more and more irrelevant irrelevant conversations. Okay. And as you, as you get deluded, as you get confused about what really matters, uh, there will be a few that will say, Hey, you know what? This doesn't make any sense at all, but because of the way power and, and wealth is about to be concentrated with the, with the rise of AI, those at the top will start to say, Oh, you don't like it. Let me show you what I'm, I can do to you. And I, and I think this world is sadly a world that will only happen if we don't go to the first solution. Okay. If we don't all now say, like Africa taught us in this conversation, that there is a way to express yourself without self-censorship that meets the higher good. And, you know, as I mentioned, and you express that in a way that is not that's not attempting to hurt anyone, that's not attempting to serve your ego, that is kind and loving, that is inclusive. If more of us start to show this, I think the movement will start. Okay, I think the pendulum will swing back. Okay. Just one follow-up question, because I think it's a very interesting point. Um, The issue that I sometimes encounter, I think probably many people who are some way dependent on the internet for their businesses, is that you shut up because... You're, yeah. you're actually afraid of being canceled and that would have severe repercussions for your life, for your families, right? How do you navigate? Because also some of the things that you say are very controversial and maybe not things that people want other people to hear. How do you message it or how do you make sure that you don't get penalized for that? You, you, you never really do. When yeah. you get canceled, you get canceled by a few and approved of by a majority. That's the truth right? The truth is, unless you really, you have the wrong intentions, unless you're a bad person. Okay. If what you're saying is good. Okay. If you will cancel you and everyone else will say, Oh my God, did you see this person got canceled, even though they're saying something amazing. And the majority is often silent as well. I I think that's something that we 
quickly forget. Um, so with social media, we assume that the loudest voices are the majority. And that is that is often not the case. That is often not the case. And I think that would come back to risk taking because I firmly believe that we're in this culture of fear and avoidance because a lot of people are not willing to take risks. And I truly believe that if you're in business, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a leader, you have to be willing to take risks. And those risks can and should be calculated, but not calculated to the point of you dressing calculation up when it's actually self-censorship. I I think there has to be a risk you're willing to take. Otherwise, you sanitize your message. Otherwise, you end up blending with every other business, every other voice, every other platform, and nothing actually makes you stand out. So I, I think there's more of a cost to that. But I think when you know what your values are, when you know who your clients are, when you know who your customers are, and they know what your value system is, I think that allows for you to understand what your message is, but also not every hill is worth dying on. Hmm. That's really important. Sometimes the hill is a private hill, not a public hill. You know, there are certain things that I have many opinions on, but I know that these are for my private conversations. They don't have to be on my platform. In the name of unraveling self-censorship, I don't have to lose tact. So I, I think it's like a delicate balance and it's like a dance that you do, you know, whether you're in business or not. But I think you need to increase your tolerance for risk, for smart risk. So, and then I think that informs the messaging. First of all, again, thank you so much for such a beautiful conversation. I just loved the directions you went in and resonate with so much from sobriety to relationships to vulnerability. So truly, thank you. Um, I actually have been working in education for the past 10 years. And although that's not really what I'm doing at the moment, my, my mission has kind of been to encourage schools to employ health education specialists, which is what I teach. Um, But I also set up a a podcast. And one of the questions I always ask is, what do you know now that you wish you were taught at school? So I'd love for you both maybe to answer that question. What do you know now that you wish you were taught in Zimbabwe? My answer, I'm going to say it in a simple way, even though I think it could go on and on. But I I do wish that in school I was taught the true history of Zimbabwe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, now as an adult, I think it's quite sad that we weren't really taught our history. I'm from a country that was colonized by Britain. So even back in Zimbabwe, English is the second language. Shona is the first language. It's my mother tongue. It's my first language. It's what I speak today. But... I really wish that I was taught when I was in school to be proud of our country because we learned so much about Britain. We learned so much about how great the British were, et cetera, et cetera, Queen Elizabeth and all of this wonderful stuff. But there wasn't really much about our country and our heritage. I would like to think that it's changed more now, but I think it would have helped me as an immigrant coming to the UK to not feel ashamed about my country, which I don't at all now, but as a child I did. So I think I would have, I would have loved to know the true history of my country, which I'm learning about now. I think that would have made a lot of difference actually as a child. I, I, I find that this is fascinating because it goes back to the other question where history is the top level of censorship. 
Oh my God, it's so interesting. One of my lifetime dreams, and hopefully one day I'll be able to do that, is to have AI read the history in every language, right? And then tell us the true history. Because if you read World War II from the point of view of Russia, it's documented very differently than the Japanese, documented very differently from America. And I think there is so much uh, written by the victors. Uh, think about it, right? I won't actually expand at all, but I'll leave you with that thought. I would want to be taught that life is a video game. Think about that. All right. Uh, Africa. This was wonderful. Thank you. Do I get more coffee when I'm in London next time? Please. Yes. Uh, without those. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Spectators. Uh, you're, you're an amazing soul. And I think you're on a mission. And I think you're going to make a difference. And I'm very, very grateful that you're here. I love you very, very much. It's always a joy to be in your presence. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, again, I'm fully receiving that. Your words really do land exactly where they need to. I'm just so grateful that we've connected. And to be on this mission together, which I truly believe that we are, is an absolute pleasure and a joy. I love you too. Thank you. For all of you listening, I think uh, we took a lot of your time today. Wonderful conversation. I hope you I hope you loved it as much as I did. Share it. It really matters when you do rate it, like you guys do on social media, like those five star things. Uh, watch it on YouTube, by the way, because I think not enough of you are aware that we're uh, now quite uh, growing very fast on YouTube. And uh, yeah, take a little bit of time to reflect because as I think of all the things that Africa taught us today, I think the one that really registers most is that brutal acceptance and honesty of where you are in life today, because without that, you would never find a step forward. To do that, you need to reflect. To do that, you need space, you need silence, you need a little bit of slowing down. So it doesn't matter how busy you are this week. I'd ask you to take a little bit of time to slow down. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.